So wait, Paul, yeah. you really think at least that candidates should consider having sex on camera as their next big fundraising endeavor? I think it's really brilliant. This is the Balance of Power Roundtable. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am joined by former Democratic two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and our conservative political consultant analyst, commentator, and everything else, Alicia Preston. All right, let's start with the funnest story of the day. It turns out that a state delegate candidate in Virginia has been caught red-handed, so to speak. She and her husband apparently were uh, having sex on camera and asking for money for this. And this has all come to light. There is a kind of a serious side to this story. The Democrats are claiming that this is a violation of revenge porn laws in Virginia. The fact that this has been screenshotted and been brought to light by her political opponents. Nonetheless, let's talk about the fun aspects of this. Paul, are you for serious? You really think that the next wave, the next frontier in campaign fundraising is Let's get it on. Look, given that get most of the world no. spends most of their internet time watching porn, maybe this is the next wave in fundraising. You just think of all the think of all the fun that couples could have raising money for their political campaigns from the sanctity of their own homes. All you need is a camera and an audio feed and there you are streaming yourself live to your supporters saying, hey, watch this. And, you know, if, if you think this is a, a tough campaign with hard issues, you ain't seen No, bad, Paul. You ain't seen nothing yet. And hey, there's also reaching, the reverse. We're, we're reaching out in a new way. How about this? How about if you give us enough money, we'll stop. We'll turn this off. Yep. Fund us, interrupt us. Alicia, is this... Does this offend your conservative sensibilities? You're our conservative on the panel. Does this shock you? Are you clutching your pearls? I, I'm pretty libertarian on the sex issues myself. As for the revenge porn, no way. You want to get hinky and put it online, someone else is allowed to point it out. Here's my theory on all <laughs> That's fair game. It's also fair game if you want to vote for someone who's doing their business online for money. I wouldn't, but it's your business to do that. Look, I take my theory on this. I also believe in legalized prostitution, believe it or not. However, I still think hookers are whores. So I kind of have the same vibe on this. Wow, it's words, please. <laughs> That's how hey. I've always felt. So you, know, you can do what you want and I can judge you. It doesn't it make a difference when it's- when She it's wasn't fundraising for her campaign, cause. to be clear. She was, and she and he, like, let's not do yeah, what society does. That. Yes, the this husband is, is involved here in the sex right. act. He's in the deal. Yeah. All right, the thrust of this, see what I Oh my there. God. Yeah, is for me. All right, I actually have a serious view on this. And I right before we got on the air, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without sounding like a perv. I'm not a perv. Oh boy, that sounded bad. That was like yeah, Richard the Nixon. second someone said I'm not, I'm not yeah. people. Oh gosh, I'm a libertarian on this too. I do not understand. Paul, you just said it perfectly. America freaking loves pornography. Like the entire internet, this is like the dark hidden secret of the internet. The internet is here because of pornography. I know we like to say that it's here because of email and flying toaster screensavers, but most of the innovation on the internet was accomplished by porn merchants and Americans consume pornography at insane rates. And then we love nothing better than to get all Puritan about it and to do what I almost inadvertently did a moment ago and say, these women are harlots. They shall be stoned with stones. I, this is wrong. Like what this couple was doing, it's not my cup of tea, but it is legal 
and it was performed by and for consenting adults. I have no freaking problem with it. It has nothing to do with anything as far as I'm concerned. It has nothing to, if this candidate were running in a jurisdiction where I could vote, I cannot think of a single thing I would care about less than whether or not she was having sex with her husband, of all things. Like, go on, have sex with your husband. Here's the thing, though. And and like I said, I have no problem with the legality of it at all. I do. It goes to judgment. When I'm voting for somebody, I don't just say, what bill are you going to pass? I like in my head. I question the judgment of the individual. Like I question Donald Trump's judgment more than I question his policies. I question the judgment of a mother and father of two small children putting their business out there. When you're also running for public office because guess what now you've put your kids in a weird position i question you as a parent as you put your kids in a weird position but you still have and shouldn't they come first that's where my judgment line would come you put your kids in a really poor position here for personal gain think about the powerful nature of the statement that she made she called the exposure of the videos an illegal invasion of my privacy designed to humiliate me and my family It won't intimidate me and it won't silence me. She had an opportunity to make a really powerful, strong, hard, tough statement. Was it a loud comment? I don't know whether it was a loud comment, but it was a comment. But she put it out there and now she's saying it's not fair that people saw it. Come on. It's also ridiculous. But I think the service involved, the argument they're trying to make is for revenge or for political gain in order to expose what she was doing, which, as Matt says, was a legal, apparently legal activity. This is public. It's not public. I think that's the distinction here. I think it's the distinction. It's not like she was live streaming it on her website, house, dirty housewife candidate.com dibs on that. It's I, my understanding is that it was on a service that I'm serious. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. Oh yeah. Give me an actual answer. It was streamed live on Chatterbait. Oh, don't ever say that name Mm -hmm. again. And they are often archived on other publicly available sites, including Recubate. Gotcha. Okay. So even no. Despite <laughs> my pleas to get rid of prudery in our lives, this may have pushed me beyond my 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 taste. Yeah, I but again, this is something it's a paid service. It's not meant to be a public live stream. But they so put I, it on public other public websites where they're archived. So they well, don't stream it first, they get paid, then they archive them on public sites. So let's at so least the, public. I don't think they do that though. No, Chatterbait does that. Yeah, so she had 5,700 followers on the original stream site. But let's also give a, some kudos to her opponent, who said that he'd found out about the story just like everybody else. And he said, quote, I'm sure this is a difficult time for Susanna and her family, and I'm remaining focused on my campaign. Can I give the world's smallest golf clap for that, please? Come on. If you and I, Alicia, you and I are advising <laughs> candidate Paul Hodes, he's the opponent. He finds out about this. What would we tell him to say? That. It's like, hey, your opponent's having a scandal. Look magnanimous. That's all you and have then- to do. Get third parties outside to share the crap out of that yeah. story and video. Yeah. With, with no one able to, to call. Yeah. For not coming across like an ass. Basically. But let's also remember that this is an important election, given what's right. going on down in Virginia and the abortion politics that are happening down there. This is a this is a very close battle for control of their House of Delegates. It's a very important, it's an important race. Yeah. Look, 100 followers, if they're if half of them are in that district, 5,700. That could make the difference. Get, that could make the difference. She only right. needs 25% of her followers. She right. should do a campaign video in the same van as she's done in the past. And yet they should be wearing shirts 
or he should at least be wearing a shirt that says the date of the election and where to show up for the polls. While this they're performing the sex Wonderful. Yeah. Outside that's the box get, thinking. That's how right. you get more people who maybe don't vote to come. That's it. I'm just saying. it's an, Or at least have big signs behind them. On the you know what I just, I just realized? Listening, Ron, here's a way for you to leapfrog the field, Ron DeSantis. There's a oh new way to gain popularity in politics. Yeah. Go I also out. just realized for people who want to hit like the 30 second rewind on their podcast that I inadvertently said something filthy. And on that note, we've got to stop talking about this because it's actually beginning to hurt my brain. Hey, speaking of important elections, there was a little momentum over the last few days behind pundits wanting to say, really, Joe Biden, you're too old. Don't run again. It was kicked off by Andrew Sullivan, who is a conservative on his Substack, but it got a little bit of play. And look, this is his role in life, but he is a Trump hater. He has been relatively friendly to what Biden has accomplished. And his argument is the man is just too old. He's too compromised by his declining faculties. And it's time. And you were supposed to be a transitional president. Uh, Joe Klein, the noted columnist, also wrote much the same thing over the weekend. You're supposed to be a transitional president. And that means you need to be in transit. You need to hand off to someone else. Alicia, I know your feelings about this, but I also know your feelings about the desperate need, the country-saving need to defeat Donald Trump. Does that give you any pause here about this question of Joe Biden? Joe Biden says he's running, but really, when you really think about it, should Joe Biden take this seriously and, and reconsider his decision to run? Absolutely. And for the good of the country. Look, he is too old. There are going to be people who his performances when he's speaking and talking and doing important things are not up to par. And there will be people who look at that and say he cannot do four more years. And where do those voters go? If Trump's on the ticket, maybe they go to him. I think Trump's too old, too. But that doesn't seem to stick with anybody who supports him. And people are concerned about and legitimately talking about. And I'm talking to some of my Democrat friends. Nobody wants wants Kamala Harris to be president. And people are legitimately concerned whether Joe Biden, and I don't wish this to happen, I'm just stating the facts, can make it four more years and will be left with Kamala Harris. That alone could send people, and it's not going to be a blowout race no matter who's which side wins, that could send enough people to the other side or voting for third party or not voting at all to make this election determination. And it could go Trump's way. I don't think Trump's going to be president, but I think every time Joe Biden stumbles and Kamala Harris gets out there, he gets another vote. And that concerns me. I think Joe Biden can't do the job. And I'm not a Joe Biden hater, but I, I think he can't do the job. I think he's too old. I think for the good of the country, he should step aside so a qualified Democrat can get into this race because anybody but Kamala Harris could be done. Okay. So just to read that back to you, what you're arguing essentially is that it's a bigger risk not to take one. And that if we stick with Joe Biden because he's familiar, because he just did this, he won, he defeated Voldemort in 2020, we're taking a bigger risk because we're not skating to where the puck is going and his compromised faculties over the next year could imperil the project of defeating Donald Trump in 2024. Let me ask you a quick follow-up question. When your friends who are Democrats say they don't want Kamala Harris, are they saying they don't want her to be president or are they saying they fear her as the candidate and the Democrat standard bearer because they think she'd be a weak candidate? The latter. And but I, I the latter, they think she'd be a weak candidate and that Trump could beat her. And the concern is because she's the number two, if Biden's the one still on the ticket, there will be people who vote against Biden because of the concern of because the unpopularity of Kamala Harris. Got That's it. where the concern lies. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Paul, this is a personal question for you. You supported Joe Biden in the last campaign. Joe Biden, you were a national co-chair for Barack Obama in 2008, before and during the period when Joe Biden was tapped as his VP nominee and eventually became vice president. The man, how do you, how are you thinking about this right now? I agree that there are challenges. The polls tell us there are challenges. We're a visual, we're a visual society. And that uh, presents logistical and political challenges to people who are making judgments about how they're going to vote in on 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 the basis of images as opposed to issues and facts. But that's it does po it poses a challenge. I had the pleasure and of spending quite a bit of time with Joe Biden. And I know how deeply and passionately he he feels about the things he's done and the things he's doing. And we also haven't we also haven't talked about the Hunter Biden question. There's an interesting article in the New York Times over the weekend about what a what a challenge that's posing internally for the president and those who support and love him because he's really he lost one son, he has one son left. And the the trouble that his son has been politically. So there are certainly there it creates headwinds. And if the theory is we can't afford any headwinds at all when we're up against a, a juggernaut like Donald Trump, the question becomes, I guess, a more lively question than I would like it to be, because I think Biden is a great president and I think he'll go down in history as a really as a great president in terms of his accomplishments both domestically and internationally that said politics is a cruel hard game and these days there's not a there there doesn't seem to be a lot of room for any for nuance and truth i, I think it's a lively question i keep but i ask, and i ask myself who else is out there and if it's not biden who is it and what does that mean for an election? Because assuming it's not Trump, assuming it's a DeSantis or Tim Scott or Vivek Ramaswamy or or any or somebody else, which way who does the country who does the country turn to? Given that the perception apparently in the country is that despite all the progress we've been making since the pandemic and all the accomplishments of Biden and his administration, people aren't feeling great. So it poses a real challenge for the Democrats, who frankly are not great at messaging on the best of days and have not been doing a very good job messaging about the accomplishments of the Biden administration. I feel a real dilemma here. The best argument in favor of Joe Biden continuing his campaign to be reelected is that he does have a little bit of a superpower that has not been demonstrated by other Democrats yet, which is he holds up pretty well in the swing states with non-college educated white voters. Compared to other Democrats, he generally performs. And that's one of the key reasons that he's been able to maintain the electoral college majority that won him the presidency in 2020. This 
in a way, all that matters. It is the core issue. We don't have the luxury of hoping that Donald Trump won't be the Republican nominee. And so we have to be asking ourselves, what strategy maximizes our chance of beating Donald Trump? What strategy minimizes the risk of an absolute catastrophe for America? If we're assuming that Donald Trump is the nominee, which we should, then there is this argument. Joe Biden has already shown that he can compete and win with key demographics and in the key swing states that matter. Now, the other side of the coin is Alicia's argument, which I think you made very well, which is you have to skate to where the puck is going. And whatever issues he's having now, and I think they're a little overblown. I think they're mostly peccadillos. I think they're they're nothing compared to the word salads that Donald Trump delivers on a daily basis. I don't think he's nearly as addled as Republicans would like to have the public believe. But I, as Paul says, there is a perception problem here. It doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is, are voters going to just get this gestalt feeling looking at Joe Biden and say, yeah, he's too old, which is what Alicia is saying. Are we, in a way, taking more of a risk? I worry less than I, I was before about whether Democrats could put someone else forward at this point. I think Jared Polis, Pete Buttigieg, even Kamala Harris, who has some political challenges, I think they could all, we fear, I think Alicia's right, Democrats are afraid because her polling numbers are weak. I think that any of them could emerge as strong, credible challengers. Gretchen Whitmer has been bandied about a lot. I think Gavin there is Newsom. a bench. Gavin Newsom. There is a bench for Democrats. And I think all of them would be credible against Donald Trump. But again, I worry. Of course, I'm risk averse because what we're talking about is the survival of the country in the balance. And so I'm not quite there yet on Biden, but I have to say I'm paying more attention than I was. Hey, I want to talk about a related topic really quick. This generated a lot of buzz in the last few days. This polling from non-white voters, we're seeing it in an analysis in New York Times. Roy Teixeira, the noted data analyst, has also been talking about it. It's becoming undeniable that Democrats are just not faring as well, election in and election out, among non-white voters. Paul, how worried should Democrats be about this trend? I think Democrats should be really worried. You and I have had folks on our on our show talking about this issue for quite a while. This is not, this isn't new news. This is old news that seems to be confirmed by recent polling. There are a lot of issues for, uh, there are a lot of reasons for this. Apparently, some of it is generational. Some of it is social. Younger voters, uh, younger non-white voters seem to have much less allegiance to the Democratic Party than their elders did. And that generational shift is not good news for Democrats, who always assume that non-white voters are, are Democratic voters. By and large, it's not true. And Democrats ought to wake up and do something about it as, as much as they can as soon as possible. Alicia, any thoughts on the data that you've been seeing? What's interesting in, in what I was reading this morning on this topic is it tends to be working class black and Latino voters. And here's what I think the problem for the Democrats are. They focus a lot on identity politics and they focus a lot on pandering to minorities with words and protections from words and things like that. But guess what? If you're working class in America right now, I don't care what color you are. You're struggling. 
And that, whether you're white, black, Latino, or anything else, that's what you're focused on. I'm not a minority, but if I were, and I'm struggling to pay my bills, and all I keep hearing from the left is, you're going to protect me from a bad word, or look, that person over there is a white nationalist. I'm going, okay, how's that feeding my family? Can, can you talk? They're not talking to them about the issues they're focused on. They're pandering on racial issues. And I think they forget that at the end of the day, they're just Americans who are struggling like the majority of us. I agree with that. I have two thoughts on this. One is that I'm less worried about it in a short term sense. There was a great analysis from Nate Cohn in the New York Times that pointed out that a lot of this erosion in support among non-white voters is happening in states where Democrats are already winning large majorities, New York, California, et cetera. So short-term impact muted. And in fact, the overall electoral college advantage that Republicans and Donald Trump have enjoyed cycle in, excuse me, and cycle out seems to be eroding as well because of what I just said, the fact that Joe Biden is surprisingly strong among non-college educated white voters in these Midwest battleground states. And so short term, it doesn't give me a lot of heartburn. Long term, I think you have a point, Alicia. I think that there's been research, there's been messaging research that has shown that the most effective message to break through, not just to non-white voters, but also to white voters or working class or middle class does resonate around economic issues and not drawing sharp distinctions around race, a kind of, hey, the, the language you just used, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your racial background or national origin of your forebears, we all have the same concerns. And here are some ideas that could make us all better off. That kind of language tends to work the best. And it's a best practice that Democrats have not always follow through on. Some smart guy once said, it's the economy, stupid. And it's the economy, stupid, is still really good advice. All right, let's talk about one of those hot button issues that's percolating right now. Let's talk about guns. In New Mexico, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced an emergency executive order temporarily suspending open and concealed carrying of firearms in Albuquerque and the surrounding county around Albuquerque for 30 days, citing recent killings of children. This is obviously an extraordinarily somber topic, but it does seem to run afoul of the Supreme Court and recent rulings that specifically say that you can't, on a state level, you can't restrict gun carrying unless it's in sensitive areas that are not very well defined. And so this move does seem to run afoul of the Constitution. Alicia, what was your reaction? You wanted to talk about this one. What, what do you have on your mind? Sometimes you see a story or see a headline and you have to delve deeper because you're like, that can't be true. That's what happened to me on this story. A governor unilaterally banned guns. There's no authority. Even if, look, it wouldn't pass constitutional muster if the legislature of New Mexico passed this ban. It wouldn't hold up in court. It most assuredly does not belong in the unilateral hands of a governor to ban a constitutionally addressed product. It, it, it's dumbfounding. Now, look, it's sad. I read the stats and the stories of a 14-year-old murdered, a 13-year-old murdered. It, it's terrible what's going on in Albuquerque. But you cannot just unilaterally ban a constitutionally protected 
because of what's happening. You have to fix it elsewhere. And again, even if she went through the legislative process, the legislature wouldn't have been held up constitutionally, but certainly not the overstep bounds of a governor. And and I think it's horrible, but I think the answer has to be security, policing, enforcement. You can't take everyone's right away, and you certainly can't do it with a stroke of a pen. Paul? Her move has drawn, as they say, bipartisan backlash. Uh, liberals and conservatives both seem to be up in arms about her decision. It's a terrible pun, but everybody is upset with the governor over this. A sheriff in the biggest county in 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 the region said he won't enforce the ban. She said, of course, the ban will be enforced. Sadly, what she's done is, is unconstitutional. It's just that that we, we may not like that the Supreme what the Supreme Court has done about guns. We may not agree about about gun safety and what needs to be done. But a governor, this action by the governor has drawn bipartisan outrage for overstepping the bounds of her office. No notes. I agree. Let's move on. Is there going to be a shutdown? I, just give me your odds, right? Give me your percent chance of a shutdown. I was asked this question on an economics show. Mark Zandi, the economist, had me on his show Inside Economics about a month back. And he said, what are the odds of a shutdown? And I said, 80%. And he was quite taken aback. And I stand by that. I think it might be up to 90%. That's me. You guys, where are we at? I don't I'll take, know. I'll take the other side. I say there's a 10% chance of a shutdown. What are we going to put on this? A subscription uh, to that candidate's website. Don't say the name of that. Don't say the name of that site. I, and oh, no. in my, oh, my delicate ears. I can't oh, take no. it. I just want to submit for your consideration the fact that Politico has been leading every single newsletter for the past three days with their inside reporting, including from a reporter who we've had on this show, Rachel Bade, who is as well-sourced inside Congress as anyone. She, she may be the best-sourced reporter inside Congress working counting today. Votes. Is she counting the votes? What she is saying is that something has shifted. There's been a game change, and McCarthy is facing some serious headwinds. And she also notes that some of his allies, remember, he's got basically a five-seat margin to play with. And there is the possibility of a motion to vacate, which would mean a vote on whether he can continue as speaker. And some of his allies have been sidelined. There was a resignation for, for health reasons. There are other Republican members who are currently unable to be there because of health reasons. And so he right now may not actually have the numbers. If there were a motion to vacate today, he might not be able to hold on. And there are some serious demands coming from his hard right flank, including no Ukraine funding. That's a fun one. And that he severely ratchet down the funding levels that he agreed to and that Senate Republicans in a fit of reasonableness have agreed to. They've passed all of the appropriations bills that fund the U.S. government. And his right flank is saying, nope, you've got you've to slash them down to nothing, and they want to insert all kinds of policy. The White House has threatened to veto the Department of Defense appropriations bill over those policy issues. And so to me, it's, I'm just going by the reporting, 90%. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, but look, 
you talk about things like defunding Ukraine, and that's great sound bites for the Marjorie Wacken Noodle name lady out there. And but the majority of people, including the vast majority of Republicans in Congress, don't agree with that. And yeah, they can push and they can make their demands. But if you can get the Democrats and a huge chunk of the Republicans, that's what you need. You don't need every single Republican. Are the Democrats really going to vote against a fair? way to not shut down the government? I don't think so. And the majority of Republicans aren't either. I don't know why people, including McCarthy, give so much attention to the crazy five to 10 people that are doing the crazy stuff. I don't know why. I don't care about them. But don't they have the leverage? What they have specifically said is, if McCarthy cuts a deal with the Democrats to do what you just said, they're, they're, he's out of there. Okay, so and don't they have the leadership to not shut down the government? This is not just Republicans. Democrats do this too. Everyone does whatever they can to hold on to their individual power. We are in very unique times right now. And Kevin McCarthy, I guess you've done okay as speaker. I don't have any huge problems with you other than your sycophancy for Donald Trump. But if you lose the speakership, this isn't losing your seat in Congress. If you lose the speakership for the sake of not shutting down the country, really, dude, what's more important? What is more important? And that could be the stakes here. Look, I gave 0% chance last shutdown because I really believe that. I'm at 10%. That took me a long way to move because I'm, I have no faith in people putting the country first, which is an oath they took before they took office. That's my thing. So we'd have to put faith in McCarthy saying, I will lay down my career for the good of the country. It is more important to me to avoid a shutdown. I, I don't have faith in the Can somebody explain to me why the Republicans want to defund Ukraine essentially Republicans stop. don't want to defund Ukraine some crazies on the far want to because they become isolationists because they caught up in conspiracy theories because somehow it's offensive to Donald Trump because of that phone call that got him impeached the first time it, it it all always goes back to Donald Trump when it comes to the crazies but no the vast majority of Republicans do not want to defund Ukraine but those That's a fun one the crazies I mean, are Republicans right the crazies are Republicans but they're on the far right yeah, like they're not although, even the right. They're just uh, Donald uh, Trumpers. Can I submit for you, if can I interest you in this story from Semaphore? I'll just quote it here. False conspiracy theories about the pandemic have grown so widespread on the right that the majority of participants in a recent New Hampshire focus group thought that the current COVID uptick was tied to Democrats trying to rig the election. What? Yeah. yeah, I read that. And I would say it's like the focus group that CNN did after the first Republican debate. And I laughed at the participants they chose because they were deliberately looking for a narrative and the outcome. That's what these focus groups do. I live in New Hampshire. I know a lot of people. I work with the government in New Hampshire on a daily basis. I assure you, most people do not believe in these conspiracy theories. Okay, you say so, although polling showed that at its height, about 45% of Republicans believed in QAnon. I'm just saying. I'm also saying that 45%, I don't remember that number at all, but let's say it's true. I'm willing to bet most people who said yes didn't actually know what QAnon was. They just heard it. They well, heard that's... it and was like, oh, it's a Republican thing. Oh, it's a Donald Trump thing. Oh, it's whatever. And they believed it. The thing... QAnon's a real thing. It's not that it's not a real thing. It's just that no, it's, they it's believed in thing. the theory. Well, yes, oh. but right. But I mean, they believed in the precepts. So. Do you think so, there's really a cue out there? Is there someone who is the no, is, he's been identified. He's this oh, talk about a that. guy who subscribes to chatterbait. Wait a second. The real question. Let me just go back to where you started. Are there enough crazies in the Republican cult to simply shut to shut down the government now? Are there enough crazies? And the answer is maybe yes. 
maybe Matt Robeson is right that McCarthy, that they're tired of him and his liberal tendencies, that they're going to exorcise him from the cult because he's not crazy enough. And there are enough crazies in the Republican Party in Congress to do that because that's what the Republicans have become, the party of crazy. No, it is obviously just looking at Congress and the, the Matt Gates, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Lauren Boeberts. There aren't actually a whole lot of them in Congress. There's They're all maybe going 10. on chatterbait together. They are. I, clearly, I the party has become a sanctuary city for crazies, right? Come here. You are safe within our party. You are Looney Tunes. You are Fruit Loops. You're nuttier than Squirrel Poo. And there's a home for you here. We love you. Let's get out of here on this. This is such a not fun story. Paul, you really want to do the story about the federal judge ruling against Texas Governor Greg Abbott? Let's do it. We can do it. It's just, just, it's a bummer. Yeah. Look, Texas Governor Abbott strung razor wire across the Rio Grande to try to stop people from swimming across. He's just a kind and benevolent governor, a man of compassion and, and deep faith. He was sued by the Justice Department uh, over uh, illegally blocking federal waterway without the right kind of permit. Uh, a federal district court judge agreed with the federales um, and said, Governor Abbott, take down your razor wire. And the next day, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned that and with no decision, apparently just said, no, nah, he can still keep on doing it until we hear more. So the thing is up in the air. But what kind of governor, even in the face of immigration issues, strings razor wire across a river to try to kill people who are crossing? Welcome to Texas, people. I'll tell you exactly what kind of a governor. I think the reason I thought that this story, I agreed with you, was important and interesting is that I think that this is performative. I think like Governor Grisham in neighboring New Mexico, and if New Mexico doesn't actually border Texas, then forgive me, U.S. geography was one of my weak points in school. Oh, yay, look what I just did. I could pass a 12-year-old's geography test. I think it's performative. I think they know that they're going to lose in the courts and they're just playing to their base. They're just doing something. Now, Governor Grisham's case, even though what she is doing here is unconstitutional, we all at least understand the impulse, right? Like, we understand that what she's saying is children are dying. And so I'm going to do something. And even if it's extreme and illegal, I'm going to do something. Governor Abbott's approach is I am going to do something performative that will outright kill people because I think it benefits me politically. That's the difference. But I do think it comes from the same impulse in our politics, which is to do something political that plays to your base. At least Governor Grisham's instinct is based in benevolence and a, a humane impulse towards saving children. Look, I, I don't support razor wire in the Rio Grande, but let's not forget, and, and no one's allowed to you know, talk about this reality when it comes to the border, and that is that fentanyl is coming over the border at ridiculous rate and getting into this country and killing people killing a lot of people because it's coming in so this is a little bit of a i want the border protected and i'm pretty soft on immigration and i'm more compassionate and i don't think the razor wire in the rio grande is the way to do it i think the vast majority of people coming over the border illegally looking for amnesty are people who are striving for a better life for them their families and they're leaving horrors that we americans couldn't possibly and i respect that i am compassionate toward that which is why i don't support razor wire because that can kill 
people who are mostly just innocent people looking for a better life. But at the same time, I get the reaction and need to do something. I see it in little New Hampshire. In New England, we have people on street corners dying on a daily basis from fentanyl, and the vast majority is coming over the southern border. So I don't agree with what Abbott did. I think the wire should come down, but I think it is more serious than some are letting on about our need to secure that border in some capacity. We did it, folks. We truly took the show to a depressing place. Can't we just talk about sex again? That... Let's talk about sex, baby. Why don't we end here before it becomes a total disaster? For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. We will see you next time.